Blog Talk Radio. To some, a baby's babbling doesn't mean much, but it does. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email. I'm at Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. I want to thank you so much for your continued support of the show. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. This morning, this morning, good morning, because this is a powerhouse of a woman. She's a lawyer. She's a poet. She's a revolutionary. She's an author, not only of the book she just wrote. She has uh, literature and journals. She's a teacher. uh, She's a mom. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about her new book, her new memoir, Black Power, Black Lawyer, My Audacious Quest for Justice. Uh, This is Nkiti Taifa. Good morning. Good morning, Joy Keith. How are you? Well, you know, I was out of breath. (laughs) Dealing with COVID (laughs) stuff, you know, when I first first caught you. Um, But let's talk about that. How is COVID affecting you and your family? And what what steps are you taking to protect yourself? Oh, my goodness. I've been a complete and total couch potato, I will say, from the second week in March after I came back from a huge slam dunk conference called Beyond the Bars at Columbia University, came back and heard all about this um, coronavirus. I've basically been a couch potato at at home since then, other than uh, watching the revolution being televised. I mean, I've been there, done that, so I honestly was watching it being televised, you know, besides going on walks. I've been kind of staying close to home and kind of just doing a little bit of, of, of reflecting a month, endless Zoom, call me the Zoom queen in terms of meetings and, uh, you know, I can be in the U.K., I can be at Harvard Law School. I can be down south all in the course of one day because of the technology that we have been um, uh, forced to learn as a result of, of the coronavirus. It's great. I mean, I was doing podcasts like in 2009, and people were like, what's a podcast? And before I started, I didn't know what a podcast was. And now everybody and their mom has a podcast, and people are using it to connect all over the globe, just like you said, and I think that's a really important thing in terms of being a revolutionary, um, being um, a, a well-rounded person. You need to see what's going on for yourself uh, around the globe, and you can't just, you know, eat the news that's coming from ABC, NBC, CBS type of thing. So um, Zoom meetings are good for people, I think, if they can connect to people outside. Um, You've been connecting with a lot of people, and it shows up in your memoir. It shows up in the work you've been doing. You've worked with the Open Society Foundation. Uh, you've helped change laws, uh, crack uh, laws. Uh, you work with, you know, prison industrial complex complex issues. But let's start at the beginning. When did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? Because even as of today, based on the American Bar Association, only 2% of large law firms have women of color 
Yep, you're absolutely correct. But, you know, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. It was quite a while ago. Um, I'm actually in the eighth grade in my uh, junior high school black history, um, black studies class. This was during the time when black studies was just coming into the uh, classrooms. I'm talking about in the late 60s. And there was this poster on the wall of this black man with a black beret on his head with a spear in one hand and a rifle in the other hand sitting in a grand slam with a chair. And all my classmates, all the girls, y'all, you know, talking about how fine this brother is. <laughs> I just kept asking the teacher, well, why is he in prison? And I'm saying, why is the head of the Black Panther Party being represented by white lawyers? I was asking, where are the black lawyers who represent black people? And from there, mm. I felt that I wanted to be one of those lawyers, one of those black lawyers to represent black people. Now, you know, what did your family think when you told them you were going to be a lawyer? Were they supportive? Were they like, oh. are you crazy? <laughs> well, that is one thing that I know unequivocally that they were 100% supportive um, of. I'm not quite sure about other things, even though I will say I always have had a, just a – uh, a family just just let me stretch forth my wings from the moment I adopted an African name when I was 16 years old to them getting Kwanzaa presents as opposed to Christmas presents growing up, them having to, to suffer through listening to me recite Frederick Douglass's What to the American Slave is Your 4th of July and all the different cookouts or doing Thanksgiving before we even say the prayer. They have to listen to a selection from me um, from Reverend Shakabusa Barashango's book called African People and European Holidays, A Mental Genocide. I'm talking about all of this is while I'm in high school and all that. So they generally have been very, very uh, supportive of me. So when I said I wanted to be a lawyer, and then when after undergraduate school, I decided to teach and didn't go into law, my daddy said, girl, you better go on and get that dog on law degree. And, you know, three years later, I did end up going to law school. I got that daggone law degree, and it's been uphill ever since. So your name, you talk about that. Uh, what's, tell us a story about the drum and uh, beer bookstore, or uh, what, what's it, and uh, Koji and Nambi? Yeah. What's, what's that all about? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I'm 16 years old, and, you know, you know, a lot of us were experimenting with different names. We would spell our names backwards, and we would do the whatever those little memes and stuff were back in the day. But I said, I want an African uh, name. And I went to this um, black bookstore at 14th and um, Fairmont uh, Street uh, called Drummondsphere Bookstore. Um, I'm in D.C., so Kojo Nambi, he was a fixture in D.C., um, at, at the time. Actually, he wasn't famous then as he is now. He's a media person. I think he was working the register. So I picked up this African name book, and I'm strumming through it, and I see the name N-K-E-C-H-I, and I'm looking. I don't even know the correct way to pronounce African names. I never heard of Nkuma. I didn't know N had the um, N sound instead of the N sound, and E had the A sound instead of the E sound. So I'm looking at it. It looks like it said N. Kichi. And I said, all right, that's how my name, Nakichi. And, you know, Joy, it wasn't until I went to college many years later that I found out that the correct pronunciation was Nkechi. It's an Igbo uh, name, Nigerian name, and um, that was the correct pronunciation. And I tried, I swear I tried my best to pronounce it the way the Igbos in Nigeria, the name, but it just kept reverting back to Nakichi. So I rationalized it by saying, well, I'm a new branch of the African 
family on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. I'm a new African. I have self-determination. <laughs> I'm going to pronounce it Nikiti. But I never have a problem anytime anybody so-called mispronounces it because most of the time they're pronouncing it correctly in the first place. So that's my name story. And, you know, I now, didn't have anybody illustrious bestow a name upon me. I didn't have a naming ceremony or any of those other great things. Uh, you hear people, okay. you know, talking about so grandly. I just plucked it out of basket name book, had it ever since. Now, you know, people say that when a person has an African-sounding name or a black-sounding name, they're not able to get as far. You know, people look at their resumes and they just throw them to the side because they're like, oh, that's a black person, um, even though they have the same qualifications they, as their white counterpart. When you were uh, looking for a job as a lawyer, how did that affect you, um, or were you okay and you didn't have any issues? Oh, I'm sure it most definitely affected me. Of course, no one said anything. I can't point to any specific statistical uh, information. Uh, but I really sometimes wonder just how much further I could have gone. First of all, if I had not been a deeply melanated young woman, okay, deeply melanated, dark skin, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, mm-hmm. never adulterated my hair. My hair has always been in its natural state, whether it was natural or with the afro or naturally locked as it is uh, uh, now. And then that African name on top of it, and the African name that most folks can't even pronounce, man, I had all <laughs> sorts of strikes against me. So you know my sister. I had to be better than anybody, just about anybody to be able to just get a couple of inches. <laughs> so I just wonder just where I would be. Uh, I fit more closely to the prototype that is uh, considered the quote-unquote American standard. Who knows? I don't know. I've gone quite far. I've made tremendous I think you've impact. done a lot. Well, yeah, I don't think you have to worry about that because you've made a lot of impact. Tell us about your relationship with Chokwe Lumumba and how he affected your life. Chokwe Lumumba was my legal mentor. Oh, my goodness gracious. I knew more about the law before I went to law school primarily because of my work in what we call the struggle. Brother Chokwe Lumumba, Brother Imari Abubakari Obadeli, Queen Mother Ali Moore. I mean, I sat at these people's uh, feet, and, you know, I, I was exposed to uh, international law and criminal law and civil law, civil procedure, and the like. As a result of the legal battles <laughs> that we were confronted with during those um, uh, during those times, Chokwe Lumumba, as most folks know, later on became the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, his son uh, now holds that um, a position. His daughter actually was one of my students when I was teaching at Howard uh, Law School much later on. But as a young person, Chokwe was my not only legal uh, mentor, but he, along with Brother Mario Bedelli of the Republic of New Hampshire, helped to um, inculcate in me a lot of principles dealing with revolution and nationalism and independence and all those things that Malcolm X talked about, all of these things that basically have been swept under the rug because folks talk about the civil rights era and the civil rights struggle, but many times they don't talk about the black power era. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book that I wrote, Black Power, Black Lawyer. Okay, so we're talking about black power, black lawyer. Is there, in your mind, one way a person has to be a revolutionary, or can people be different types of revolutionaries? 
you know, maybe they're uh, fighting within the system and some are fighting without, or no, that's not possible. What is your opinion on that? You know, I don't know. I never really quite thought of it um, that way. I mean, I know me, myself, I wear a lot of different hats. Before the Internet came around, most folks didn't know anything about most of the stuff that I wrote about in my book, the whole half of my book dealing with the black power um, stuff, because I sometimes I might have just chosen to wear uh, a different hat at times, even though I maintained always my authenticity, <laughs> you know. So uh, I, I'm not quite sure. Sure, honestly, about the answer uh, to that question. I think people have to authentically be themselves. If they're a revolutionary, I still consider myself a revolutionary, even though I'm a lawyer working in the, in the system. Uh, I'm a revolutionary, even though I was a policy uh, analyst uh, working for George Soros' organization. I was a revolutionary, even though I was working for the um, um, uh, American Civil Liberties Union for the Women's Legal Defense Fund. I always was and still am a revolutionary because I do believe fundamentally in change, in change for the better, okay, and in change for uh, a more humane society. Can you talk a little bit about the Republic of New Africa? Where was that? Who created it? Tell the audience because many people, as you said, are not aware of some of the things that you're bringing up in your book because they're swept under the rug in the regular quote-unquote civil rights history? So I'm in uh, college, and I'm at Howard University, and I'm sitting in a, uh, a lecture, a presentation, not by a professor who was part of Howard, but by a, just a community person who was in there talking about the 14th, the 13th Amendment and 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And my brain immediately perked up because I always was a history buff. History was my major. He said that the 13th Amendment freed you, but the 14th Amendment could not have made you a citizen, that you had to have been asked if you wanted to be a citizen. You had to write to accept or reject that offer of U.S. citizenship. And he said, we were never asked. Instead, three years later, in 1868, the 14th Amendment was passed, which said, all um, people born and naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is we were not asked. At that time, 1865, many of us uh, did not necessarily want to join that new white nation that was coming up. It was very reminiscent to what happened January 6th. <laughs> in terms of the attitudes <laughs> and behaviors of the, the, the white people at that time, there are many, many, many similarities. They didn't want to join into that. They wanted to have their own separate Entity. Many wanted to go back to Africa, but um, homeland ties were severed, language, religion, culture, didn't even know where to get there, mm-hmm. such and such. So there were many people who wanted to stay here on this land, which we built and fought for, and establish our own nation. So in 1968, a group of people came together and said, we want to call this nation the Republic of New Africa. We want to establish five states in the deep south, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, and North Carolina and establish a, uh, a nation with a government, with a declaration of independence, with a constitution, and all of that. And they considered that, I'll close this off in a second, they considered that the elevation of what Malcolm X would have been talking about had he survived independent land um, and internationalization, nation recognized by other countries in the world. So, boom, that was it. And it caught my ears like fire. Chokwe Lumumba was very much a part of this movement, and Mario Bredelli was a part of this movement. Betty Shabazz, the 
a white Malcolm X was part of this movement, Queen Mother Moore, uh, you know, just about anybody who was anybody at that time. Anybody, yeah. Was talking about nationhood. Now, how did you become part of the Black Panther? Did somebody approach you? Did you go to one of their offices? Uh, yeah, how did that I, I, process happen? Let me clear happen? that up. <laughs> okay. Let me clear that up. Okay. I was never a member of the Black Panther Party. What I used to ah. do was go down to their office on 7th Street every Saturday, sit in on the PE classes, uh, sell their Black Panther papers downtown of the streets of Washington, D.C., and sit on the lap of that fine brother who was pulling security in the front office. <laughs> I was never a member. I was just a little teenage girl who just was just mesmerized by everything that I saw, um, you know, about uh, this group. So, no, I was never a member, a card-carrying member, or anything along those lines, but I was around them quite often and um, every single Saturday. So the Black Panther newspaper still has some of them in the basement from way back. Now you day. talk, of, you know, we um, talk about your revolutionary. You were, a, you are a mother. How has that affected you being a lawyer and a revolutionary? Well, I do have pictures of this video of, of my daughter on my step while I'm sitting at the podium, <laughs> and you know, doing a keynote speech for. Address and all like that. Even though she would say, "Mommy, you never." I don't want to be a lawyer because lawyers never have any time for their children. I just, I just really trust me. So I show her the picture. Look, I said, "Sweetie, you were there. You were there with me everywhere I went. You were there with me inside my 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 belly before you were even born." You know what I'm saying? So she has been with me every step of the way. But it is difficult. This balance. Um, a family and work and political uh, activities, uh, struggle, protest. It is a balance, and I must say, I don't have the answers for that. Um, in, in my book, you'll see a lot of vulnerabilities, and there's not just a history textbook or anything along those lines. Um, there's a lot of personal um, stories in there as well. There are um, um, uh, uh, bad decisions that I made that's all up in there. There's failed relationships yeah. You talk up about in some there. of the abuse that you, you face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're very brave to do that because, you know, some people would only tell certain parts of the story, but you, you open yourself up a little raw in there and you talk about um, people breaking your trust, invading your space, you know, be, being abused. Um, how about when you became a, a lawyer, do you feel – as a woman, um, you were abused maybe verbally by your, your white counterparts. And how are you dealing with that today? Yeah, this whole lot of microaggressions. I mean, you know, some of them aren't even microaggressions. Some of them are macroaggressions, uh, you know, uh, like uh, uh, pretending like I'm the defendant as opposed to the lawyer. Okay, I'm the person representing mm. the person treat me like a, a defendant or, um, um, or insinuating uh, that um, um, I, despite the fact that I have a Sixth Amendment right to represent my client zealously within the bounds of the law because I might be representing unpopular uh, clients, uh, you know, to I- insinuate things that they should not be insinuating about me as a lawyer. So, yeah, there's been um, a lot of that over uh, the years. Um, and not as much respect as I would think or respect there to be. In fact, just recently, uh, there was a situation where and I 
wrote a very scholarly uh, piece that it's a controversial piece, but very scholarly and very accurate. And a white lawyer, uh, much elder white uh, male lawyer, who was a progressive lawyer, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about anybody not progressive, but kind of like dismissed it because where it was coming from and actually contravened what I was saying. So I had to show the evidence, and he had to back up and say, apologize and say that he was wrong. So it's just that, you know, not being respected or expected to know what you're doing and know what it's all about. And then me, really, sometimes, honestly, not having the confidence, okay, to speak up for myself, not having the confidence, knowing that I am correct, okay. So now, that's something, you know, is that, is that something, you know, we find with women, like they, they say women say sorry all the time, whereas a guy would never say sorry mm-hmm. about something they did, just little things, it could be. But women were always like, oh, sorry, you know, a, a guy would do that. But you have all yeah. the qualifications, yeah. and you've had the experience in a variety of arenas. And so for somebody to question, especially if it was put in a journal, journal articles are reviewed oh, by a peer, peer, a panel of peers, so it, that, that, it should not be questioned. L- let's talk about Black Lives Matter. How do you feel they are succeeding? Where are they failing? What should be their next steps, Black Lives Matter? Well, I just love Black Lives Matter. I just love them. There's one thing I will say, however, that concerns me, and that is we seem to have gone from the pinnacle and the height of the rhetoric, I'll just say, that we were used when we talked about black power to now just being able to have to acknowledge that our lives matter. Black lives matter. I mean, what what does that mean in the space of time from the 60s to um, after the turn of the century where all we can do is say, make sure that you acknowledge that our lives matter, that the man get his knee off of our neck. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm chagrined with that, okay? But what I love yeah. is that this new generation is coming up and connecting the dots and bringing forth um, the ideals that we were thinking about and talking about and advocating for in the past and bringing them into the present and future. I feel joy that I can just sit back. Like I said, during COVID, I can just sit back and watch the revolution (laughs) being televised as opposed to being out (laughs) on the seat myself, old me, right? But but there are people who are out there who are continuing the struggle, and I can do nothing but salute them. How about this new administration? Do you think it's going to recognize Black Lives Matter? What about women's lives? Can you be a feminist and a Black Lives Matter person, or does that supersede? What's your opinion on those things? Oh, no, I think you can definitely uh, do both. I mean, we all have intersecting um, identities, um, though in my perspective, uh, whether I was going to be born a man or a woman or any other type of sex, I'm not using the right terms and all like that, but I knew I was going to be born black, okay? So to me, that's yeah. always primary. But we all have intersections. So, uh, uh, you know, and in terms of this uh, new administration, I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> After the last four years, I mean, I, I, I'm beginning to exhale. But in that exhaling, <laughs> it is a critical importance to know that the new administration cannot, must not be given a free ride there. Their, 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 their feet must be held to the fire. They must 
be accountability. I walked the, the, the halls of Congress during 1994, uh, five months pregnant when the crime bill was being discussed and debated, and ultimately I passed under the aegis of um, Joe Biden, and, 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 you know, and, and signed by Joe Clinton. And, you know, there needs to be a reckoning for that. But I'm confident that uh, I believe in second chances. <laughs> I'm confident that we're going to be able to um, reckon with some of those mistakes of the past that still, you know, last forward into today in the form of mass incarceration. I'm working closely with the Biden-Harris administration to try to make sure that those things happen. Now, you were just, um, I believe, participating on February 9th with a uh, reparations webinar uh, at the ABA. Um, do you think we still, we being African Americans, deserve reparations? And who is going to get the reparations? And who is going to pay for it? Because those are the questions people always say. Well, I wasn't a slave owner, so you're going to take my tax dollars and pay these people? And then who are these people that are going to get the money? So reparations is an issue whose time has come. And yet this week I will be speaking before the American Bar Association on the issue of reparations. I've spoken all over the country over the past 40 years with respect to the issue of reparations. Reparations is an issue whose time has come. There's currently a bill in Congress, in the House, and the Senate, calling for a commission to study and develop reparation proposals. That's where all of those questions will get answered. When that bill is passed and that commission is set up and that group of experts looks at all of the different proposals that are out there, examines all of the different um, uh, questions that are um, out there with respect to the issue, looks at all the documents that have been written from Randall Robinson to Tanahasi Coates to Mary Frances Berry to myself, Nikichi Taif and Mario Bedelli, Chopra Lumumba. I mean, this is an issue that has been studied ad infinitum, and it is time that there be a commission to gather it all together and come forward with um, recommendations. It is an issue whose time is coming. It is an issue that people all over the world, including those in the United States, Japanese Americans and the like, have benefited from. Why not black people in this country as well? Let's talk about the right to vote. You know, that is one of the, I think, I me personally, one of the powerful things that we have that we can do, and it was shown in this recent election. But uh, what about felons? There are many places that felons cannot vote how can we change that? I feel they served their time, they did their time, they're back in society, you know, they have a right. How can we affect that situation? So absolutely. And we usually, we, we, we call them formerly incarcerated people. We try to get away from stigmatizing language such as felons. Um, and the like. They want to be looked at and understood and known as human beings. And that's really one of the reasons why it's so very easy to stigmatize them and to um, um, not grant them rights or full rights that other people have because we don't look at them as full human beings. We look at them as felons forever and ever. And not as people who have already paid their debt to society and now are entitled to re-enter with full rights of citizenship, just like any and everybody um, else. Nothing happens in the short term. The successes that we saw in Florida and other places were the result of um, of seeds that were planted long, long uh, ago. But sometimes there are certain moments that materialize that capture 
approach everything into reality. And we're at that stage now where not just felony disenfranchisement and, and voting rights for formerly incarcerated people, but in terms of fees and fines and bail issues and um, mandatory minimum sentences and people being um, just locked up for unconscionably lengthy, you know, periods of time. There's a reckoning joy piece that's going on uh, right now, and I'm really proud to be right in the middle of it. Where does love fit in all this? Love for your fellow man, love for your black um, friends and family, uh, neighbors, the people that raided yeah. the, the Capitol, the Congress, do, do we extend love to them, understanding to them? Should we sit down and talk with them? Where does love fit in being a revolutionary, the revolution? So there is a concept, a quote that, said that, that goes, justice is love. And those of us who are justice-seeking people and legitimately justice-seeking people are loving people. We're doing what we do because of love. Okay, but it's not a situation where, like, I'll just say what happened in Charleston, uh, was in Charleston, South Carolina, and right after the, the, the whole church is shot up and ransacked and the pastor and parishioners and elderly people murdered, you don't go the next minute and wrap your hands around the person and kiss and hug them and say, we've forg- mm. forgiven and forgotten about everything. There's got to be accountability. You can't skip from one point directly to another point. What happened in the Capitol a couple of weeks ago? Unconscionable. And then you, 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 you see the disparities. You see people granted vacations in Mexico or granted organic diets who stormed the Capitol or should be sitting in prison where other people who uh, uh, are convicted of marijuana offenses, which is currently legal and still languishing in prison, something is wrong about that. The love that we have should be that there should be not be disparate treatment uh, such as that. The love that we have is that you need to look at the motives, um, reasons, and reactions, the way people um, 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 assert themselves. This is like John Lewis and the people who went across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and the violence that occurred as a result of that. Or is it the terrorist mob that stormed insurrectionist mob? Do you treat them the same? Do you love them the same? I submit no. Where do white people fit in our revolution? Can they be allies? Um, you know, there's the people that want to get involved, and I'm not racist, and what can I do? Where does a white person fit into the black revolution? Well, I will say this. In my book, I have a whole section on that because I represented a group of white revolutionaries who were um, affiliated with um, black uh, movements. I represented them uh, in court. They're always definitely uh, a role for everybody with respect to the movement, with respect to the struggle. And it's not just one struggle. It's not just one movement. There are many. One of the things Malcolm said that I just always felt was so um, true and prophetic is that we just need to organize within ourselves, within our own communities, within our mothers and fathers and grandparents and aunts and uncles. I found uh, I, 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 when Trump was elected, I, I talked to many of my white colleagues, and they said that they, progressive white colleagues, and they said they have family members, parents, um, you know, cousins and all, who voted for a Trump. And it was the, the, the extent of this <laughs> just really kind of yeah. surprised me. White people need to organize amongst their family members. 
Mm. What do you see for your daughter in the future? What is her future going to look like? Is she going to be recognized and she will no longer have to say Black Lives Matter? Or is she going to be continuing this for the next 50, 100 years? And what about as a woman? Will she have to fight her way getting into whatever job she decides because there's still disparities of pay um, and also that glass ceiling, so to speak? And, Joy, I think that that's an excellent question. I think, I honestly think a lot of it is going to depend on exactly what we do within this next four years. I think that's going to set us forward exponentially or it's going to set us back exponentially. So I think a lot of it, a lot of that, a lot of the future, I think the future is going to depend on what we do uh, today. We've seen the, the, the world has been pulled off of our eyes. We see the threat. We see the danger mm. that it is. Not mm-hmm. from outside of this country or anything along those lines. Mm-mm. There's so many mm-hmm. unsettled things since the end of the Civil War. Some people think the Civil War never ended. So many similarities between then and now. And what we do now, and what we could do now, not only uh, with, with the environment also, as well as with politics and policies and um, all the various issues, it's going to determine just what the future is going to look like, if it is going to be a future. So I, I hope it will be for the sake of my daughter, for the sake of your um, your daughter and, and everybody um, else that um, – that this won't be the end, but that this is the beginning of the beginning, the dawning of a new day. That's what my hope is. I hope the same thing, too. We talked about we have daughters of the same age, and, you know, I worry about her safety, and I, I worry about her dreams, and I hope that she can, you know, fly free, um, like you said, your parents and your family allowed you to do. So uh, let, let's pray on that and cross our fingers and toes. Uh, but I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book, Black Power, Black Lawyer, My Audacious Quest for Justice. Um, also, people can check you out online. Um, you're on Twitter uh, under your name, yeah. and uh, you also yeah. have a website, Black uh, Power, Black Lawyer. People can check that out to get more information. Uh, you can, yeah, of course, order the book. BlackPowerBlackLawyer.com. Also, you, we, I would encourage people to buy the book from a black bookstore uh, if they can to, to keep that money in within the community and, and strengthening the neighborhood. Uh, what what yeah. are some of your last words? What do you hope people will get from this book? Well, <laughs> I hope that people get from this book that they can particularly young women, okay, they can challenge the dominant culture while remaining true to their political and their spiritual beliefs. They can have an African name. They can keep their name in the African name. They can keep their hair in its natural state. They can maintain a, a somewhat stable, positive family life, but they can still kick ass. They can be their authentic self and take their authentic self to wherever and whatever they do and still make a tremendous difference in society. And that's what I feel that I've done. Well, I think you have, and I can't wait till the next book. (laughs) Um, And and just real quick, you know, she has poetry in the book. Uh, She's an artist, um, so she has many sides to her. So it's not just this uh, long, arduous uh, read about, you know, the Black Power movement. She has other things inside. I thank you again so much for coming on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Joy. 
You have a great Saturday, a great weekend, and remember, wear your mask, wash your hands. (laughs) Absolutely. Stay safe. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Um, I'm going to be giving away some copies of uh, her book, Black Power, Black Lawyer, so you want to follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. So uh, next week, I'm going to be talking with uh, author, poet, artist, uh, wow, playwright, Walter Mosley, also going to be doing a show about having, uh, creating healthy uh, relationships, marriages, uh, you know, next week is Valentine's Day, so we got to talk about that. And uh, I hope you can tune in there. And on Thursday, what? On Thursday, I got a special show at 7 p.m. Eastern uh, with a special guest from Snowfall, uh, the TV show. It's going to be coming out the new season. I think it's February 16th. So uh, keep an eye out for who that is. And uh, thank you again uh, for your support. I really appreciate that. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov.